Welcome to the podcast about stories from the center of the universe. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Dr. Brandon Dunnelly is an emergency room doctor. In our conversation, we discussed Brandon's med school experience, including the insane amount of work required, the misconceptions that some people have, and the type of people that succeed in the med school environment. He went to Randolph-Macon College for undergrad, then UVA for medical school, and finally University of Pittsburgh for his residency. He also tells us about his role as an ER doc, including the physically intensive 12-hour shifts, how crucial it is for him to stay professional and calm in chaotic and emotional environments, and all the awesome supporting staff roles that keep the ER running like a well-oiled machine. Finally, we talk about what COVID has changed in the ER setting, and Brandon addresses a question that he gets a lot, which is whether he has ever been pressured to list COVID as a cause of death for his patients. So without further ado, here is Dr. Brandon Nunnally. Brandon Nunnally, welcome to Podso One. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, Brandon's yeah, Glad to have you. Brandon, I think you feel a little bit like you're on another planet right now, maybe. A little bit. It's all, all new to me. <laughs> it's all good. It was new to us a year ago. In fact, I had never listened to a podcast about uh, 15 months ago. I didn't know what they were, really. Yeah, and now you slam Rogan every day. Yeah. And so we should uh, mention it to our 42 uh, listeners that we met Brandon uh, through Brandon's childhood friend, uh, Lindsey Greenwood. Lindsey happens to be a neighbor of mine. And she knew about the podcast and she said, oh, you've got to talk to Brandon. I'm like, what's what's the deal with Brandon? So she told us all about you. I'm like, oh, of course. Yeah, man. He's a he's an ER doctor and he sounds like a cool dude. So why wouldn't we talk to him? Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yep. We grew up together. Um, we like said play, play together as toddlers. Uh, family is still very close. Good friends. So Yeah. Uh, and she literally, you could go see her. Is she going to be mad at you if you don't swing by uh, on the way out? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> Might Maybe. be a little late. Maybe. Yeah. But they've known each other a really long time. That's true. And, you know, I've heard that ER docs sometimes have crazy hours. Like, is that? Yeah, yeah. Hours are all over the place. Um, definitely benefit of having the shift work and the set schedule, but, um, you know, it goes all over the place. I just work three night shifts earlier in the week, and then I'm starting back on morning shifts tomorrow. So, uh, you know, something's open 24-7, 365 days out of the year. It, you know, it doesn't really change. You always got to have somebody in there. Yep. Always um, got to have it staffed. So when you say night shift, is that like all the way through the night? Yeah, it depends on, on the ER, but typically they'll, you know, start at 7 p.m., seven, anywhere from 7 to 10 p.m. and run until 7 a.m. the next morning. So straight through the night. Wow. So, so brutal 12-hour shifts typically. Yeah, depending on the place, anywhere from 8 to 12-hour shifts. Yeah. Um, there are some more rural ERs where you can find 24-hour shifts, but um, oh. I, I wouldn't really want to do more than a 12-hour shift personally. Dang. Yeah. Have you pulled a 24? I have not. In, in residency, we did. but uh, It's brutal. Not. Yeah, working straight for 24 hours is, is rough. Are you effective in hour 23? Uh, it depends on how busy it was. And if I got an hour nap or a 30-minute nap, I can usually recharge and push through. Um, and it depends on how much caffeine is readily available. Yeah, but. wow. That sounds completely uh, unrealistic to work 24. Yeah, kind of. It's a little surreal when you get in that deep and you realize how long you've been there. But typically, it's it's so busy, the time really does kind of fly by when yeah, you're yeah. there. So mm. it doesn't feel like it's you know twelve twenty four hours. It it goes by pretty quick. That's awesome. Nice. All right. So where'd you grow up exactly in, in Richmond? 
So grew up uh, on the west end of Richmond, um, as, you know, most of my, I guess, childhood years um, uh, by uh, Godwin High School. Okay. And uh, then when I was in high school, we moved out um, just inside Goochland County, mm. so down River Road, and um, went to St. Christopher's uh, all throughout from junior kindergarten through through senior year. Junior K, which yeah. I didn't know was a thing. Huh. Yeah, it was a 14-year 14 uh, 14 lifer there. It's a real investment by your parents. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't obviously appreciate it at the time, but now that I've started to look into schools for yeah. for my son, I, I realize how much of a commitment and sacrifice they made. I mean, it's uh, I, 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 for the record, I also would say Christopher's. And uh, when I was going there in the mid '80s, it was not super expensive. I mean, it was relatively speaking, it was it was not nothing. But how much it costs now, I I, I can't comprehend that. Yeah, that was a kindergarten cost. I, it kind of right. blew my mind when I saw <laughs> like, the price tag. Oh. <laughs> Like, are they learning how to squeeze right. coal and turn it into diamonds <laughs> right. in there? What's going on? That's <laughs> uh, good times. Uh, so, what are your fondest memories of growing up? Um, I, I try to think things specific. Um, family vacations. I mean, just, you know, nothing uh, crazy. I like the kind of simple stuff. Just going to the beach for a week with the family, running a beach house and having the whole family there. Grandparents, uh, family, little sister, just kind of hanging out for the week. Um, you know, in high school, we went on a couple other, um, you know, international trips that were pretty memorable. Nice. Um, but for the most part, just uh, I think the, the, some of the best memories are just those kind of simple family vacations. Where's the coolest place you, you ever went? Um, as, as a kid. As a kid. As a kid. So I didn't go. I, I never left the country until I was in high school. Um, but uh, you know, as as a little kid, I, I think you know, to me, the coolest trip was going to Disney World. We'd get in my granddad's big conversion van. It had a TV and a VHS player. Oh, nice! I'd oh, sit in wow. the back. We'd watch VHS tapes the whole way down to, to Disney well, World. Your, your, your family had it figured out. Right? Yeah, yeah. They rented the conversion van. We'd drive all night, and it was uh, it felt like one big party. That's so. awesome. Yeah, I it, was, remember, it was great as a kid. Yeah, my cousin, ha my cousins have one of those, and we didn't like the little thing that flips down. Yeah. You can watch the movies. I was so jealous. They don't make them anymore. You can't <laughs> find those anymore. Yeah, I, I guess because everybody has their own little screen in their hand. Yeah. at all times. Right. So yeah, yeah. who knew? <clears throat> So, did you play sports growing up? I did. Yeah, I um, started off like every other little kid playing little league baseball and um, uh, football at uh, Kanawa. And oh, you're uh, a Kanawa I, kid. Yeah, I played at Kanawa. I'm, yep. I'm an Ashland Viking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Remember playing Kanawa against you guys? The, uh, K A N. Oh, this is gonna be fun. You're gonna try A W H A. I've seen the signs for. I just didn't know how you, how you pronounced it. Kanawa. Kanawa. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Okay. Sorry, you were gonna ask a question. No, I don't think yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about Kanawha football, and yeah, when that that field at Kanawha back in the day, it the the end zone actually went into the woods. Yeah, yeah. There were trees in the end zone. <laughs> yep. Was it still like that when you were playing? It, the trees were right at the end of the end zone yeah. when I played. They there. were in the end in zone the end. when we played there. Like, what happens if a kid <laughs> yeah. runs into one of those? What happens? Do you get points? <laughs> Do you have um, points to track that I, yeah. I didn't understand it. Uh, those were good memories. I feel like uh, you know, it was uh, as a kid, you know, there, there was real football. It was even Kiwi, you know, they put the pads on. You were you were taking yeah. each other out, right? Uh, I'm not sure if they let them get credit, you know, quite as aggressive these days. Uh, they're a lot safer these yeah. days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Back in the day when we wore leather helmets, uh, it was a lot more aggressive than it is today. Yeah, I think we were in. I don't know. I was, I was still a young child, and we were in the playoffs, and I remember. At halftime, the coach coming by and, and spraying this sticky hand yeah. on our hands yeah. at the halftime to, to try to give us a little bit of an edge. I'm like, you know, looking back, I'm sure that's probably not legal, but I'm pretty was, sure it was illegal, right. but whatever. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah, we're like, like 10 that. years old, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and back in the day, and I, how old are you? 
Uh, 34. You're 34. I'm, I'm 52. And it sounds like it was true for you, too. Like, coaches were really intense. Oh, yeah. They, even they, at that age. They wanted yeah. – you know, as a father now, and my son's 19, I'm like – I don't want him banging his head that hard into things. Yeah. I, I didn't even give it a second thought when I was oh, Yeah, they would do the sideline tackling drills where you just line up at each other and <laughs> just, just run head on and just, you know. I remember, you know, it, it, yeah, that was in high school, but I mean, I remember specifically getting knocked out several times and, and never leaving the game, no concussion protocol. That wasn't around when I was playing either. So it was like, all right, are you are you hurt or injured? And can you get back in the game? All right. Yeah, I got the same thing. I, yeah. I got – Basically, the doctor told asked me if I was nauseous, right. and I said uh, a little bit, and then he basically he didn't actually say this, but he basically said rub some dirt on it kind of yeah. thing, and I'm like okay, <laughs> but I did yeah, not go back in because I didn't remember like an hour and a half of, right. of the game, so yeah, and being knocked out several times, and now you're a doctor, like you gotta wonder what you were thinking back then. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It was just every <laughs> other kid was playing football, and you know they told me it was gonna be okay, so I, I just. <laughs> Got up, brushed it off, and kept playing. And you have a son now. How old is your son? Two. And so are you going to let him play football? Uh, I think I would. I, I think I would. Are you going to um, push him to play football? I don't think I would push him, but um, he's already showing a lot of interest in sports, and, and he wants to watch football on TV. We started playing soccer league with him, and uh, it's, it's kind of funny. My, my dad has been letting him watch rugby. Mm. So when we take him to soccer practice, he wants to play rugby. So he runs and picks up the ball and starts <laughs> tackling the other kids. Grand, granddad's not helping. Yeah, and, and the other kids happen to all be girls on his team. So he's the only boy, and he's tackling all the little oh, girls on the team. Oh, man. That's funny. Yep. Well, at that age, they just run around in little groups, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't know what's going on. Too. Well, the, the ones they that are just... paying attention to the ball just – all of them get, right. gather around the ball, and then there are two kids picking little daisies yeah. or whatever. And then one of them cries, and yeah. they all start crying. And, yeah. and then as a parent, you're like, why are we, what are we doing here? Because yep. how old were you when you first played organized sports? Uh, I, don't, I wasn't that young. I, I can't remember specifically, but I, I, I was probably maybe five or six. Yeah. I don't think we did anything younger than that. It but. was eight back in the day for eight, me. Yeah. So hearing a two-year-old Yeah, like organized soccer. sports, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what can, can you play an organized sport when they can't walk? When they're right, when yeah, they're just right, crawling right. around. Yeah. <laughs> what since we brought your son up? What's his name? Uh, Benjamin. Okay, nice, yeah. very nice. And is, do you call him Benjamin or you call him Ben? Uh, we usually just call him Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot simpler. Yeah, it's a take that syllable off. It's efficient for sure. Yeah. Very cool. So, uh, what's what uh, positions you play in football? Uh, so it's actually offensive line. I played center really all throughout. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why, I, you know, because I guess when I was younger, I was on the bigger side. Okay. And then into high school, I, I was actually a little bigger than I am now in high school, um, but was still relatively small for, you know, O-linemen to be, you know, 200, 210 pounds. Right. But um, it worked out in high school because most of the team, teams we played had a four-man front, so they needed someone a little smaller and quicker to go cut off linebackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it kind of worked out to, okay. to have a slightly smaller, quicker center. Did you choose center, or did a coach kind of steer you there? A coach steered me there in, in yeah. Little League football. It was a peewee football, and they, they got me playing center, and it just kind of stuck, and uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I kind of like being the small guy. And Yeah. It's, so I, I played uh, quarterback, and I bring that up because the center and quarterback have a very yeah. important relationship. Did you find it strange that the the normal uh, hike was that weird for you? Seriously, uh, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're like a kid, yeah. you're like, well, this is a little odd, but you know, what's the normal hike? Oh, so, so Daniel's an international guy, and so he doesn't have right. a full appreciation for. We we don't need to be too graphic, but let's just say 
Uh, centers are, I, I don't know, do you want to take a shot at this? I don't know, you, get, you get pretty close with the quarterback. <laughs> you know. uh, we'll, we'll give you uh, more detail uh, off recording. How about that? <laughs> okay, excellent. It has something to do with the whole bending over and passing yeah. it back between your legs? Yes. Okay. And what's, yeah. They keep it real tight under there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. You don't want to fumble. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's good times. I think I follow. Okay. All right, so then you went to Randolph-Macon, and, and as a Richmond guy, you didn't go far from home. What was the attraction to uh, Randolph-Macon? No, I uh, had originally uh, thought I wanted to go to a bigger school. I had I had wanted to, I you know, growing up, going through high school, actually wrestling turned into be kind of my main sport. Um, I like football, football, but it was always a little small. Um, right. And I uh, thought I wanted to go to college and wrestle. Uh, but by the end of uh, in going into senior year, I realized I, I was kind of done with it, with the weight cutting and, mm. and everything. So I, I didn't really have any interest in, in doing that in college. Um, and I thought I wanted to go to a big school, but having come from a small high school, um, when I went to some of the bigger schools on tours, I felt a little overwhelmed. You know, I felt like a kind of a statistic, and, and just it was it was just a little overwhelming coming from such a small right. uh, school growing up. Um, so when I went to Randolph Macon. Uh, touring there just felt like home. It felt like being back at uh, small at St. Christopher's. I felt like it was very personalized. You know, some a lot of the offices are in small houses. Right, you know, everyone right. kind of knew your name when you walked onto campus, uh, and that really stood out to me. I kind of wanted to be in in that environment uh, for college. So that's cool. Uh, did you know uh, Barkley Dupriest? Oh yeah, 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 I know her very well. What's her What's her reputation? <laughs> yeah. There? Oh, I mean, she like she pretty much runs the school. She, uh, I don't think anyone you know goes to that school and doesn't get to know Barkley. I mean, she knows everybody there. She has a giant personality. I grew, she does. I, I grew up a block away from her. Oh, and That's her husband cool. Rob is is oh, awesome. He's an awesome dude. So I know him him very well. Our um, uh, my grandparents are were very close with them, and my uh, cousin. Uh, was best friends with Tad. He played football with Tad, and and is very cl- was very close with what, Tad. What's your cousin's name? George Bland. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So he went to Macon, and they um, uh, we're going to go to Macon and together, I believe. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, the accident. But, yeah. Tad. Tad yeah. played football and baseball his freshman year at Macon. And yeah. Then, and, and then the, George uh, went there the following year. My yeah. cousin. So yeah. Brutal. Year behind. Yeah. Uh, awful time. It's actually, I think, the third time Tad DePriest has come up. On, oh, on really? Wow. I, I grew up yeah. with Tad. I mean, I yeah. played backyard football, wiffle ball, yeah. all kinds of things, and. Uh, his his charity that his friends started mm-hmm. is still going. Yeah, the golf the golf tournament. They, they do, do a golf tournament. Year, and yeah. I think an oyster uh, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. I did the golf tournament once. It was a lot of fun. All right, so let's let's go, let's go back to wrestling. Okay. My, my the line I use with wrestlers is you weren't good enough to play basketball and that's why you wrestled. Yeah, but that's, too short to play basketball. That, that's usually not. That, sometimes there's a little truth to that. Yeah. But But there's something about the individual endeavor that really yeah. some people gravitate to. Why did you gravitate to it? Um, I I had never. No one in my family had never mentioned wrestling, never even knew that it was a thing. And really until middle school, I had never even thought of it until eighth grade. And you had to do three sports at St. Christopher's as mandatory yeah. athletics. I'm sure it was you know, for it you. Was I mean, you mandatory day. sports. So I knew that, you know, at that time I was playing lacrosse also. So I knew I was going to do football. I knew I was going to do lacrosse and I had to do something in the winter. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm too slow for track. I'm too short for basketball. Let's just do wrestling. Yeah. And I ended up just kind of clicking and uh, we got a, a new coach in there my eighth grade year, who was absolutely phenomenal and went from kind of a mediocre wrestling program to my freshman year winning states. And oh, then wow. we won all four years. Oh, um, really? Wow. Yeah, we won every single year I was there. We should mention your coach's year. name since he was so prolific. Yeah, it was uh, Pete Schaefer. Okay. And nice. uh, he took us from mediocre to really a national powerhouse. I mean, we were... National? Yeah, but we were finishing top 10 in the, in the nationals what? by my senior year. What weight and did you wrestle your senior year? So freshman year I was 140, um, junior and uh, sophomore junior I was 152, 
And senior was one seventy one. But that's one seventy one's the where the bad boys are. Typically. It was tough. It was a really yeah. tough weight class. Um, but uh, I think I finished my my junior and senior year. Unfortunately, I finished as runner up at states in my weight class. Yeah. Uh, there's one guy that I, I could. There's not always beat. one guy. There's always both one. years. I could not beat him. Uh, lost by like two points. I think both years. Oh. And, and so had had, had the uh, have to live with that silver medal. That's soul crushing. Forever. Yeah. The, during, yeah. During the moment for sure. Yeah. But our team won uh, every year and. Uh, I think my senior year, we, we set a new record as far as biggest deficit. We won it by so many points. I think we could have stopped wrestling halfway through the second day and still won huh. the entire tournament. So what's the magic with Coach Schaefer? He was just, I mean, he was so intense and so, uh, I don't know the best way to describe it, but I, I think his just, the coaches he brought into that program and, and the way he kind of trained us, I mean, he really treated it more like a college-level program. I mean, we were there... Like, you know, and this is a different era. I don't think this would really function or, or even be uh, allowed these days. But, I mean, we were practicing before school. I would get a workout in during lunch some days. And then I would go in and we'd work out in the evening until, you know, it was late. Oh, wow. And and Christmas break was the same way. I mean, we'd be there every morning over Christmas break. You know, we got one day off and it was Christmas Day. And that was it. New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. That's, every other day we were hardcore. in there busting it. But he had, he had buy-in from the team. So that was what made it so special is we were all there. And we saw what that hard work was getting us, you know, when you're, you're getting national recognition, when you're, you know, you're beating every public school team in the region. I mean, we, we took down at pretty much every public school in the Richmond area. I remember Lee Davis was kind of the, the bad boys of wrestling when we were there. Yeah. And my junior year, they actually canceled the match with us. Um, they made up some reason, but we thought it was because they knew what was going to happen. And then my, they still, bunch they, of, bunch of prep school kids. Yeah. Were about to come at the time of dispatch, they were, they were very, uh. Bias. They always kept Lee Davis number one and St. Chris number two. Yeah, because there were people at the paper that probably didn't like the prep right. school kids. And yeah. then finally, mm-hmm. our senior year, they they came and we I mean, we just absolutely dominated them. <laughs> and then they finally put us as number one in the central region. I wish I had known uh, you back then. Yeah. And you could have invited me to watch that because I would have loved yeah. to have watched it that. Was, it was a lot of fun. That was uh, it was a good. So I think when you saw that success, you were willing to do the work when and you were going you through it together it too. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it just kind of taught us. You know, in the classroom too. I mean, just what hard work can get you, and what uh, sacrifice can can really do for you. Yeah. Um, and we all, you know, we all bought into it. And he had a great program. Um, and they're still a very good uh, wrestling program. I don't think, um, you know, quite as dominant, but they've they've done really well even ever since he left. Oh, he did leave. He did eventually. He got another coaching job. I think closer to where he was from um, in the Northeast. He could so, go wherever he wanted. Sounds like. Yeah, I think at that point he had a lot of opportunities. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Was, was there anything on, in particular but, at the beginning that uh, helped? with the buy-in before you started to see the success like what well, was there anything that like helped with everybody actually getting more committed to the team yeah i mean i think you know he really made a point to to work on the younger people because i mean i think some of the older guys that were in the program they weren't you know when this new coach came in and was like all right we're gonna go from like you know being a normal program to like we're gonna we're gonna you know bust it every day uh, weren't a big fan of it um, but i think when he kind of started cultivating us from like the middle school age on um, that that really made the difference is he kind of built that found, you know, from the foundation up. So then by the time we were juniors and seniors, that was just the expectation. Like if you were going to wrestle mm-hmm. at St. Christopher's, this is how hard you're going to work. You know, this is what we're going to do. And, and we're, we're going to be the best. And that's, there's no, there's, you know, there's no other option. So we had that four year vision already. Like yeah. When he, yeah. He came in and he, he said, he's like, I'm going to come in and next year we're going to win the state championship. Like that's, he, he knew how to do it. And he brought in a, a group of coaches and, um, and it, it just worked out. It was a great, uh, it was a really good experience. What a baller. Yeah. yeah that's very cool. Go ahead. You want to talk about Brazilian jiu-jitsu? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I'll just ask, have you ever thought about, uh, you, well, you're already, due to the silver medals and stuff, you're already evidently a, a dangerous dude. So have you ever thought about like uh, trying other martial arts or anything like that? I, I mean, knowing the things that I know now, I don't think I would ever do that stuff. But in high school, if like the MMA, if that existed, I absolutely would have, oh, would have, really? would have jumped on that if that was a thing. I, I still love watching it. I mean... I think just knowing, you know, I'm, I'm too old to do that stuff now and you know, starting to have injuries and, yeah. uh, you know, seeing in the ER, you know, you, you're, what happens to your body when you do do some of those things. But when you're in, you know, in ninth grade, you're invincible. You don't think anything can hurt you and stop you. And, and tomorrow's tomorrow. Yeah. 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 It, it's endless. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, like striking sports where you, you're actually punch people in the face. Totally agree. But things like jujitsu and even wrestling to an extent, you know, there's a way to practice without it being like a... You know, you're not breaking each other's arms or oh, for sure. doing yeah. stuff like that. So yep. there are some people uh, I know who are doing jujitsu that are like, you know, uh, well, yeah, well, well progressed in years. So uh, I guess there, there's a way to He's trying do to it. sell you on it a little bit. Bro. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, and also I love it whenever a jujitsu, so whenever a wrestler walks into the jujitsu gym because um, they put on the white belt and everybody thinks they're brand new, but then like, they already have such good instinct about like how to use their body weight and how to manipulate that they like crush all the other white belts, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it's really funny. And, and like, you can tell me like that guy's a wrestler, you know, cause yeah. he's just, you just, they just pin the guy on their back and it's like, all right, what do we do now? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So yeah. Yeah. If you're ever looking for something to try, there's my pitch. All yeah. right. Moving on. Well, I mean, you're really into it. Like we have to uh, schedule podcasts around, your jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I'm doing it virtually right now, yeah. but uh, nice. looking forward to getting back into it. Nice. Yeah. Ren, do you mind if we explore what virtual jiu-jitsu looks like? What does yeah. that mean? It's so, so it's solo drills, uh, which means you do things like break falls, shrimping. Um, you, you like do motions. It's kind of like Tai Chi. You like pretend that your opponent is there and you kind of just move your arms and legs. Can uh, your girlfriend video you the next time? Well, I'm trying to get my girlfriend to uh, be like a training partner. Um, she's not ideally, into uh, she's not super into it. No. Yeah. All right. Good times. So when did you know you wanted to be a, a doc? Um, probably early on in college and, and maybe a little bit in high school. You know, I, I, I didn't get the best grades in high school. Um, just because I don't know, to me, I didn't, I didn't have like a, a vision of what I necessarily wanted to do with, with my life. So, um, I, I kind of had in high school sports were my priority. Uh, unfortunately not, not grades. I didn't do, do badly, but I was kind of a solid like B, B minus student um, in, in high school, um, mostly probably for lack of effort when I look back, um, more just because I was focused on, you know, making sure I'm sleeping, eating, exercising, working out, you right. know, wrestling came first and uh, everything else kind of came second. But um, <clears throat> I, I think I knew that I was always interested in science and I think in, in high school, the one class that I really enjoyed was biology. So I went into college knowing that I, I was interested in biology. And I think that was kind of the natural progression of, well, what can I do if I major in biology? Um, and, and growing up, I was always interested in those weird um, true life doctor shows on, mm. on TV yeah. that are just kind of gruesome and gory. And, and but they're, they're, you know, they're all reality kind of TV uh, in the medical world. And, you know, even my parents told me that, you know, I was always I had a little science kid as a kid. Anything I could find outside that was was dead I would I would want to like dissect and it's probably a little <laughs> creepy but I was just really interested in, in that stuff growing up um, so I think going into college I kind of I knew that that's was a potential but I also knew that I was gonna have to change my work habits a lot right that if I wanted to do that uh, I was gonna have to really buckle down and get serious and I think 
going into college, I was able to kind of realize that, um, that it was something that I was interested in and um, was able to, I guess, probably channel a lot of that um, work ethic that I had done into wrestling then into my schoolwork right. um, with the same kind of mentality of, well, if I sacrifice, I know I can do this and can accomplish it. So I didn't have, um, you know, the wrestling, uh, but I was able to just kind of channel that and focus on the schoolwork and, and kind of flip a switch on the academic side. So the freshman year of high school, biology, the frog dissection, right? Was that still a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just like, loved it. Yeah. You were the one kid in there. It's like this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. I was. And I was like, what is this? It. There's always one. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So you ended up majoring in biology. I did. Yeah, I stuck with the biology. Um, How many biology majors uh, back when you graduated? It wasn't a ton. I, I I can't think. I mean, my class size was tiny. I mean, we maybe had like 250 students in my class. Yeah, there's not that many kids that, in the whole yeah, school. Yeah, it's a little bigger now, but um, we were like between two and 250, I think, in my class. And like literally, what 15 to 30 biology majors? Maybe? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, probably if that. Yeah, I, there were probably like a thousand big big schools, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, big schools, yeah, for sure. Uh, so did you love Randolph-Macon? I did, yeah. I, I don't regret any of it. Um, I, I enjoyed every second of being there. Um, joined a fraternity freshman year and um, KA and lived, okay. lived in the KA house Ta for three Ta years. Ted was yep. a KA. Yeah. Yeah. So we got, you know, got to see Barkley and, and Rob at all of the functions. They would come to Oh, were they really? And, oh, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so I lived in the fraternity house for all three years and um, was actually the president of the fraternity uh, my senior year. Nice. Um, so so enjoyed that, but um, was able to still kind of focus on the, the schoolwork. It's which, typically not conducive to right, schoolwork. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I would, I would have to leave, obviously leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> Getting any work done at home was not possible. I, so. I, I lived in a fraternity for two years, and my dad said, this is not going to work well for you. Right. <laughs> Like, and he was right. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, it was it was hard to kind of pull pull myself away, you know, to walk walk through the crowd, and be like, all right, I'm going to gotta go to the library and study. But, I mean, the chances of you being a doctor after like not focusing in high school and then joining living in a fraternity for three years, you didn't take the easiest path. To, yeah, to no, I, I think people when I told them that I was interested in. Uh, going to medical school freshman year of college, I think, you know, people that I knew in high school were probably like, thinking, that's adorable. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think uh, most people probably thought it was a joke. <laughs> but you were serious and you knew, yeah, yeah, and you yeah. knew once you focused, it, it was just a matter of time. Yeah. And I just needed to, to have some guidance and figure out how to do it um, just because no one in my family was in medicine um, right. in science at all. So it was totally foreign for anybody in my family. Um, so just finding a good mentor in, in college um, and, and having a good uh, outline of you know how I need to get there um, was was kind of crucial. Was your mentor a professor? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. You, you want to share his or her name? Yeah. Yeah. Doctor Foster was okay. uh, biology. He was my uh, advisor and kind of mentored me the whole time. Is he still there? He's still there. Yeah. yeah. Nice. And uh, I still still stay in touch with him. Very cool. But um, they don't have a. They, when I was there, they didn't have a real formal pre med program. Um, you know, they had kind of an interest track, um, but it wasn't a real kind of formal process. Whereas now they've got. Um, gosh, all sorts of like pre-acceptance programs at various oh, wow. schools. And they have a really robust pre-med program now, which I was, you know, really happy to find out about. That's um, great. And they're actually going to be starting a PA school there too. Really? Um, in the next two years. That's yep. going to be very popular. Yep. Yep. Wow. Uh, I, I know guys that became PAs by going through like Green Beret 18 yeah. Delta training. Mm -hmm. It was the quickest way to do it. It's probably, yeah. a, probably a brutal way to do it too. Yeah. So uh, did, did, you told me where you went to med school. Is it MCV? Uh, UVA. UVA. You went to UVA. Yep. Okay, so, yeah. the, so the finest institution in the uh, in the land. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, in the Commonwealth, of course. Yeah. No, 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 in, in, in the country. In the country. <laughs> uh, yeah, it took so, two years off, but... Uh, what did you do in those two years? 
So I had to take the MCAT. Um, first time didn't didn't get the score I wanted to get. So uh, I knew I needed to, to do like a dedicated course. So I, I signed up for a prep class and I had started working as a scribe actually in the ER um, in Petersburg in undergrad. That was uh, more so initially just to kind of confirm that I wanted to do medicine um, by getting some ex you know, experience. And then I just kept doing it because I really liked working there, um, which is probably also what led me to my interest in working in the ER uh, because I, you know, I liked it so much. I knew that that's generally the direction I think yeah, I thought I wanted to go within medicine. You but, knew uh, that when? At what point? Uh, when I started working there, probably junior year of, okay. of college, I was like, well, if I actually get into medical school, then I, I know that I'm very interested in, in working in, in, in the emergency department. Um, obviously, I want to go with an open mind um, because there's yeah, a lot of options, but uh, I kind of went in with a little bit of a bias towards emergency medicine. So were you scri scribing in the ER? I was, yeah. So at that point, it was a relatively new program, but um, we would we'd be hired by the physicians and we would essentially follow them around and just do their documentation for them. We would take the notes uh, when we, were, we would go into the rooms with them, um, which was a really awesome experience for a pre-med uh, because you essentially get to, you're stuck to their hip the entire shift. You know, you see what they see, you do what they do. Um, and the doctors that were really kind of in tune to knowing that, that we were interested would, would take the time to explain things to us and teach us a little bit. So it was a, it was a really cool experience. Wow, that must have been wild. Uh, were your shifts crazy then too, or? They were, yeah, I worked. Um, for that year, that first year off, um, I worked almost exclusively night shifts down there. So, and they were, I think the shifts were like eight to seven or nine to seven or something. So I would drive down there and then um, was doing a couple other odd jobs too. So I'd get off my night shift. I worked as a tutor. So I'd come home, you know, go to uh, the schools and tutor during the day. The next day? Yeah, a couple of times I'd, I would get off, go right into tutoring the next day. <laughs> Dang. But, uh, and then, uh, you know, then I have a few days off and then the, the, I was trying to study for the MCAT. Um, so I wasn't really working like a, you know, super crazy schedule. I was working a few days a week and trying mm -hmm. to dedicate uh, most of the time for MCAT studying and just taking a you know, few months off and just, just doing that. So would you kind of do like 72 straight hours of grind and then sleep for the next <clears throat> half of the week? Or? So I wasn't working that much the year off. I mean, I might have worked like three night shifts, so like maybe 30 hours and then had like four days off where I would go essentially just to full-time studying and then still doing some tutoring stuff on the side. So four days off would be like you'd still get sleep, but you'd just be studying when you were awake. Right, I'd just be studying pretty much full time. Okay, and kind of had a had a dedicated regimen where I'd make sure I had every Friday off. So I, that was my, that was my practice test day. I think I did like ten full length practice MCATs for like ten weeks in a row. Oh my god! How long does the MCAT take? Um, gosh, now it's different. I think when I did it, it was like six and a half hours ish. You did that ten times? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, that is every, amazing. every Friday was was practice test day, and then Saturday was I would review the entire test, what I got wrong, why I got it wrong, and then Sunday was like the day off where I wouldn't do anything. Now, no pressure. So. I understand if you want to be modest, but do you want to reveal your score? <laughs> no, you don't have to reveal your score. <laughs> it's kind of meaningless now because they changed the whole score system. I mean, at, at the time, I I did okay on it. I mean, I, so I got, a, got a 34 on it, but that's probably meaningless to anyone uh, that's that's currently pre-med. Or, or uh, knows nothing about the Right. I, I don't know anything about it either. 34 yeah. sounds amazing to us because... It does. That's the first reveal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> first yeah, time I mean, it's not, nothing to like, you know, brag about, but uh but at the time it was was, you know, good enough to open the door to most most med schools. So Did um, you uh was UVA your number one choice? It was. I, I think I I never thought it was realistic at first when I first wanted to do it because I knew, you know, when I first decided I wanted to be go to med school, um I was I had really no expectations and I knew that it was gonna be kind of a long shot 
unless I obviously turned my grades around. But then I was able to get really good grades all through college. Uh, the first time I took the MCAT did not go so great. So I wasn't really setting the bar too high as far as where I wanted to go. I mean, medical school is typically one of those things that, you know, you go where you get in. Um, you know, you usually don't, uh, you know, you don't want to be too kind of picky with it. You want to apply broadly and, and just take your shot and, and hope that it sticks somewhere. Um, but in the back, once I got the second score and did a lot better, I knew places like, like UVA were a possibility still, I thought was a, a very big long shot. Um, but, uh, but as far as if I could have picked anywhere, I think that would have been where I wanted to go. It's got a really regardless. good reputation. It does. Yeah, yeah it does. Mm-hmm. For, for lots of endeavors to include medical school. Right. Yeah. 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 So the, do you think that uh, the grind, like the willingness to grind or uh, just raw intellectual ability, like would you kind of count one as more important than the other um, in terms of like yeah. getting into med school and succeeding? Uh, I mean, it's definitely, I, I think people out there on both sides of the spectrum, but I, I think, you know, at least for me, it was more of the grind. Like I was not the naturally smart, didn't have to do anything. I mean, I went to going to St. Christopher's, you're around those people all the time, the people that are naturally smart, that, that do not have to really do anything and are going to get straight A's on, on everything they do. Mm. Um, but for me, it was was definitely needed to work hard to get to that point. Um, and then in medical school, you'd find those freak people that were a combination of both that had just natural kind of ungodly intelligence, plus they worked really hard. And I, I that would just blow my mind how smart some of those people were. But uh, my uh, roommate in med school was one of them. He's just, I mean, just oh, yeah? seemed like an absolute genius. You know, his ability to comprehend something so quickly uh, just, just fascinated me. I, was like, I sit there trying to, you know, go through it 10 times before I could, <laughs> could master it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, a combination like that, you got to be unstoppable. Yeah, yeah. So I had never really run into people like that until med school. And you, you realize. Uh, that's great, though. I, I always like to be with people that are smarter than me because mm-hmm. uh, that means hopefully some of it rubs off on you you know it absolutely i think it um it it really i guess kind of makes you rise to that level you know it's like you always want to be surrounding yourself with people that are a little better that are you know a little more competitive um because i really do think that it makes you better uh if you're if you're surrounding yourself with those people yeah yeah the key is just like being able to do that but not let it get to you that's like oh man i suck you know what i mean you gotta like continue to be okay with it and improve and uh yeah so is that why you do the podcast or is that why i do the podcast i i knew you were gonna come <laughs> you're gonna make a joke about it but uh i don't know yeah maybe we both do it yeah maybe, maybe we both have different things that we both kind of that's what it is exactly uh cool <laughs> so, so uh your buddy jim went, uh talked about going through med school and there are the gates that you have to go through yeah lots of hoops talk about the the two most brutal gates you have to go through um, so I, I think the, the biggest hurdle is just getting in. I mean, I don't remember how many applicants there are, but I know there are, you know, schools that are getting 10,000 plus applications for, you know, class size of 200. So mm. it's it, it, the, the bar to get in, I think, is the, is the hardest. And um, so much so where I know that a lot of schools, you know, having talked to people on the admission side of things, you know, it's, it's a very kind of rigid process. You know, it's not like college where maybe they'll look past some grade issues. It's, you know, it's very hard cutoff of, of it's this GPA, this MCAT score, if not, the application gets thrown away. I mean, it's not a, uh, you know, maybe they can make up for it elsewhere. It's, you know, they're pretty hard cutoffs at certain points. Um, so you've got to meet those kind of barriers to even have someone read your application. And then uh, that is another kind of variable thing too, is, is that when someone reading your application, there could be several different people that could have gotten your application. 
So maybe to one of them, uh, you were worthy of an interview, but to another person, maybe they read it and said, no, I, I had a stack of really good applicants today. And so this was the, you know, the lesser of the two. So um, after you've kind of met that you know, hard cutoff of MCAT GPA, um, the rest of the process can be, I think, a little bit objective. I mean, I don't have any of, uh, sorry, subjective. I don't have a lot of personal experience in it, but from what was described to me is it did seem a little kind of subjective after that point. So uh, I think part of it is is being qualified, but there is probably a little bit of luck on any given day on, on whether or not you get the interview. Um, but the interview is the big barrier to getting into medical school. Um, once you get the interview, the pool has been narrowed down a lot. So. I think the biggest thing there is just showing up and not being weird, um, just acting like a normal person. And I think you've got a pretty decent shot um, because <laughs> at that level, you can imagine there are a lot of people that maybe don't have the most personal skills or, right. uh, you know, maybe a little strange. So if you can get to that interview and, and, and kind of shine as a normal human being, I think you've got a pretty good shot of getting in. Um, so I think that's probably the hardest hurdle uh, is getting in. And uh, one, one of the ER docs I work with as a scribe, he kind of described it best. He goes, once you get in, you know, you're kind of in the club, you're in the system, you know, it's like they put you on a conveyor belt and they spit you out four years later and you're a doctor. So it's like, once you're in, they really want to keep you in. It's it's mm. hard to fail out of med school, um, which is, I think, contrary to, to some people's beliefs, um, that it's, 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 it is very challenging, it's very hard in medical school, but it's, um, they really make sure they invest so much into you, getting you there, that, that they're going to do all they can to keep you in school. So once you're there, it's it's hard to then you know drop out of that system because you worked mm. so hard to get there. Um, and they're inv they've invested some serious time in you as well to get you right. to that point. Time and money yeah. in, into getting you there and, and sorting through the applicant, you know, and having you come in for an interview and, and various things. Um, so so once you're there, they they try to do the best to keep you there. But um, the next, I would say, I think biggest roadblock um, is two things. I mean, one would be step one exam. So the um, United States Medical Licensing Exam, it's, it's broken up into four parts. So there's step one, um, there's two parts of step two, um, and then there's step three. Uh, and those are all like seven to eight hour tests. Um, and you do step one after your second year. And that's so that's kind of the separation between your classroom and you're in the hospital. So you finish all your basic science classes, you get out, you study for step one. And then if you pass that, you then get to go into the hospital and start working, actually, you know, pretending to be a doctor or learning how to be a doctor at that point. Um, and the step one score also has a big impact on your residency choice. So um, just like the MCAT score, the step one score is used as a, you know, kind of a, a sorting tool um, for med students. It's one of the only really objective pieces of, of data that residencies have to compare you know, apples to apples, um, mm. because everything else is, is really kind of comparing apples to oranges at different medical schools. Right. So your MCATs kind of, or your step one is your key to, to residency. And you know, unfortunately, um, you know, having a bad step one can really hinder getting into a residency program. Um, especially if you fail it, you can take it again, but that, that always follows you. So it's really a, you know, you get one shot to do it right. And if you screw it up, it can really kind of have negative implications on your ability to get a residency. Uh, which, if you can't get a residency, then you have kind of a, you know, I hate to say it, but kind of a worthless degree. I mean, you're a doctor by definition, but you have no ability to do anything with a medical degree without residency training, at least in this country. So now that you've described, like, all the stakes that ride on this, it was one exam. Yeah. Describe your, your life for the months leading up to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very stressful. I mean, you know, they try to make it not stressful, but there's really no way. When, you know, you know the stakes on this exam. I mean, you know, for, for most medical specialties, you know, you don't have to, like, kill the test, but it's always in the back of your head. 
uh-huh. you know, what if I choke? What if I have one bad day and I fail this test and then it follows you forever? So, I mean, that was probably the single most intimidating test because, you know, with the MCAT, you could take it more and, and most schools just look at your best score. But this, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what you do that first test, they're going to see that first. It's brutal score. that they look. Even if you fail, they, they look and, and look at that. Even if you come back and right, knock even it if out you the came park. back and not knocked it out, you would still have kind of that failed step one on your on your record. So it was it was. I mean, it was really intimidating. Um, they the school gave us I think twelve weeks, maybe not twelve weeks, maybe two months. I mean, they gave us a lot of time off to study. So the school knows obviously the importance of it. So um, there and you're really your first two years are kind of leading you up to that point to take that test. Um, and then after the test was probably one of the best feelings in the world, but they make you wait 30 days to get your score. Oh, back. Oh. So I know that we all went like a group of my med school friends. We all went to, um, Dominican Republic, like right after the test, we got yeah. on a plane, we forget went to Dominican for a yeah. week. Yeah. Forget about it. But of course in the back of your mind, you're thinking like, oh man, like what, what am I going to do? Did you guys like talk about answers and be like, what'd you say for this one? Yeah. But you couldn't even remember like you, you kind of would, but if there's so many questions on like an eight hour, seven hour test. That yeah. like your brain is so fried after that. I, I couldn't remember a specific question on that test, and it was just terrible. I mean, it was terrible. Like, I would never want to go through that single experience again. Um, and then you know you get your scores back, and it's like everyone gets the score on the same day. And um, you know I remember I couldn't even open it. I had to have my girlfriend at the time check it for me, oh. <laughs> like tell me if I did okay. And uh, you know I ended up doing okay. I didn't you know kill it, but uh, you know I did I did fine. Just kind of what I was hoping to get. Yeah. Uh, so that was a huge relief. And then really after that, I mean, the rest of medical school was not quite as stressful. So, so what are like the, you know, the residencies that you'd have to crush it on the step one to be able to get into? Like, are there specialties that are much more coveted than others? Um, well, I wouldn't say like necessarily coveted. I think everyone kind of goes in, you know, you kind of self-select into what your specialty is. I mean, there's a lot of different personalities that go into different specialties. Um, but I mean, notoriously, like, uh, anything like in the surgical subspecialties is going to usually have a higher average um, MCAT score. So um, things like neurosurgery or orthopedics or ENT or plastic surgery, mm. uh, dermatology, things like that um, typically tend to have a higher average score, um, but also have a much you know smaller applicant pool. So I don't know if that's more of a self-selected thing or, or how that you know really plays out. Um, but then it is true. I mean, a lot of programs do have a hard cutoff of, of MK, or, uh, step one score. I mean, I know uh, where I did residency, like our program director was very kind of open of, of we delete every applicant that has below this step one score. For so, like that particular specialty? Yeah, for my specialty, like for okay. where I did, re- and where I went to residency. And the, re- okay. Yeah, so like where I went, when they get applications, they, they screen out anyone below a certain score. So they don't even read your application if you're below a certain score. So, wow. It can be, you know, pretty detrimental for, for people if, it, you know, you, you don't do great the first time. And so where is, like, ER on the um, kind of the, the, you're the really, rankings? You're really, yeah. I'm you're, really yeah, trying. Going there. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably in the middle. I mean, I, there's okay. not, like, a hard list out there of, like, this is your, you <laughs> is, know, Did you want to say it's at the bottom? Is that what you were yeah. going for? Well, I do wonder what is at the bottom. Is that weird? <laughs> yeah. But we're not going to say because he has med yeah. friends and, that and, are doing that. And That's part true. of yeah. it is, you know, and, and you, when you say, like, at the bottom, I think it's it's hard to say, like, like, you know, you look at a, a huge field out there like internal medicine, and there are programs that are less competitive, but then there are programs that are just as hard as any neurosurgery program to get into. Right. So, so within each specialty, 
there's a huge a variability mm-hmm. of, of competitiveness within the residencies, or at least perceived competitiveness. I also, mean, yeah, when I say at the bottom, I mean at the bottom of an extremely accomplished set of students that has passed right. this incredibly difficult exam. And, and a totally subjective ranking system, right? I mean, right. you know, when you look at it's like college rankings, it's, it's kind of similar to that. I mean, it's like yeah. there's a perceived prestige. Uh, it's places, humans with their but, biases. and Yeah, know, but at that level, no matter where you go, you're still going to get great, you know, you're going to yeah. get tra- training and at the end of the day, you're still going to be a doctor in that specialty. So, and, and no one ever asks you where you went to residency, which I think is really funny. Everyone says, where do you go to medical school? And I think people perceive your ability based on medical school, but, huh. but I can tell you, medical school has, has zero to do, at least with what I do on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, I learned almost nothing in medical school that is directly applicable to my daily practice of, of emergency medicine. I mean, the foundations, sure, but like where I went to medical school has has no, I think, play on, on you know, my ability as an ER doctor, which is, kind of, I think, interesting because I think the lay person, they always want to, you know, know, well, where did you go to medical school? But, but like going to a different residency can really change your level of training and caliber. For um, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So two, two quick things. Did you want him to say family medicine? Is that why you kept going there? No, I do want to know. Sorry, no, you can do your second thing. His his med school buddies. I'm my medicine. really good friend. I was his best man. Yeah, he did family med or he wants to do family medicine. Yeah. Um, he grind like when he was leading up to step one. The reason I asked that question is he just didn't come out of his room for like yeah you know days <laughs> at a time and yeah. then uh, at the end of it it's like he had to take some time to re-socialize into the world. Yeah, like he do. didn't know how to yep. talk to people. Yep, yeah. you do. My, one of my friends, I remember specifically, he went to like his parents, they had like a, like a condo at a beach and he went there and he didn't leave. And I, I think he said he ate like pizza every day and he gained like 30 pounds. During, <laughs> so he came back and just looked like a different person. I mean, he was like 30 pounds heavier, had a huge beard. He just like, it was so funny, like seeing him pre-step one post step one yeah and he did just fine step one that that plan worked itself yeah oh he killed yeah. it yeah <laughs> but um yeah he, he killed it nice. where, where did you do residency uh university of pittsburgh okay Up at, yep did you enjoy that experience i did yeah yeah i loved it um never like you know with the whole i'm sure your buddies kind of explained to you but the whole match process um it's kind of like you know you you apply to residency programs and you apply broadly because again if you're going into a a competitive specialty and you know emergency medicine is generally you know considered relatively competitive um, on the spectrum so you apply all over the place I mean you apply you know depending on how competitive an applicant you are you know you're, you're looking at double digit applications to maybe even applying to like a hundred plus programs holy cow and, yeah and it's expensive so you know more and more money you've got to borrow to do this um, and then you've got to go to interviews so same thing like with medical school if you kind of meet their criteria, then they'll invite you out to interview. So if you've made the interview cut, then you've got a pretty good shot at, at maybe matching there. Um, and I say the match because it's this really weird computer system. So after you've interviewed, and I think I went on 10 interviews, which you can imagine as a student living on student loans who has no income, um, the cost of this process is insanely expensive. Yeah, like you fly, fly around the country, oh. stay in hotel rooms, you know, none of it's subsidized. You're paying for all of it out of pocket. Um, you do get a free dinner usually at the interview, which is a you know nice, nice but sure. yeah, uh, and then lunch the next day, which is usually some kind of you know boxed lunch, but yeah, still free, um, and uh, and you go through the same process, but then at the end of it, you you rank everywhere you interviewed. So like I think I interviewed at ten places, so I ranked one through ten, and you submit it into this computer program, and the um, the residencies do the same thing. They take everyone they interviewed and they rank them one through however many. They submit it into this computer program, and then it matches you. It's like almost like a dating thing. Like mm-hmm. it, it matches you with your best fit. Um, so you know, 
where you're, you're highest. So if you rank somewhere number one and they put you number one, you're going to match with them. Oh, God. Um, yeah. But uh, there's some weird algorithm that it uses to, to get people their match. And then I guess your, your friend's a third year. Yeah, uh, I think he's done. He's, he's done third. Year. Yeah, he's done with it. He's he's uh he's uh, so, interviews. So he's, he's interviewing. Right so now. he's got match yeah. day coming up. So that's what I was gonna say. Like he's probably getting ready. If it's February, he's probably already submitting his his rank list, uh, pretty oh, soon. Oh boy! And then you wait, and then you have match day, and it's the same day, the same <laughs> time for every fourth year med student in the country. You you we got in a big auditorium. They poured champagne, and we all got an envelope. And in that envelope, tells you where you're going to go for the next three to seven was years. Your, was your girlfriend with you, or did you have yeah, to open that yeah, one? yeah, yeah. I think she was. She's my fiance at the time, oh, nice. or yeah, fiance at the time. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, so she was with me. My family, you know, families are there. It's, oh, it's wow. a huge celebration. Wow. Yeah, it's a big party because it's literally it's, it's the culmination of your entire medical school experience. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's you've made it. You essentially at this point are already cleared to graduate. I mean, you're you're essentially done at this point. Um, and then everyone at the exact same time opens the envelope and you find out where you're going for the next. <laughs> so mine could have been one of 10 places. And, uh, you know, that's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. But luckily, Pittsburgh was, you know, high up on my list. So so yeah, I was yeah. happy with that one. But, Pittsburgh's uh, a cool town, too. It, it was. I'd never been there before. Um, but my wife and I, uh, it's kind of in between our two families. And oh, we nice. thought it'd be fun to go somewhere different for residency. Um, and personally like you know people wanted to go to like california and to the beach and i'm like you're gonna be working all the time why right. yeah why, why why do i want to look out the hospital window and see a beautiful beach that i know, can't go to that right. i can't enjoy yeah right. very cool so when when Lindsay told me about your background and, and you would be a good guest on our podcast i've been waiting to, i thought of this question almost right away yeah if you feel comfortable sharing this what's your craziest er story Gosh, um, I, I can't I can't think of like craziest because that could mean so many different things, you know. It's it's however you define it. Like yeah, I mean, what is like the you know the weirdest thing someone's put up their butt <laughs> or you know like foreign objects, uh, right? We, 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 we can go there. What is the right. weirdest thing? Um, I haven't personally seen anything. Um, too out of the ordinary, you know the normal stuff people would put in their butt. What's but, the, uh, the what's the ordinary? What, what, but it is interesting people's excuse on on you know they usually slip slipped and fell on it which I think every time. Kind of funny. Sure, yeah. every time. Yeah. I'm like really the shampoo bottle just happened to be sitting up perfectly straight and you slipped right on it and it just yeah okay. Uh, oh god. Uh, so describe like a typical uh, shift in, in the ER. All right, so it uh, kind of varies depending on on um, where I work, and it's actually kind of interesting because I'm actually working back in the same ER that I started out as a scribe in, mm. you know, a decade ago now. Oh wow! So I've been working some shifts down there, but um, it, you know, it really does depend on where you work. If you're working, I work anywhere from um, you know inner city ERs, and I also work at a little rural ER. Um, uh, in the uh, eastern part of the state, um, that's eight beds um, versus oh, wow. I work in a really big urban ER that has you know 42 beds. So right. my shift at the eight bed ER might be I see a handful of patients and then I sleep for three hours, um, which is really nice. Uh, versus you know in the urban ER, you've got ambulances coming in, you've got patients stacked in the hallways, mm. you know you've got craziness, traumas coming in all night. Yeah. Um, so it can really vary going in, but um, I think that's part of what I like about uh, working in the ER is. I'm kind of an ADD person in general. Um, you know, I, I like a lot going on. Um, I like a lot of different stuff. Um, and ER is kind of a, 
a hodgepodge of, of all the medical specialties. Yeah. Um, I think someone, I, forgot, I don't remember who des- described it as this, but they said, you know, you, you essentially get, you know, the most interesting 10 minutes of every medical specialty uh, <laughs> there is. Um, but, hmm. you know, it's, it does have its downsides. I mean, you know, you, you kind of are, a, a, you know, jack of all, but master of none. So, um, you know, you're not uh, in any one area. Um, you know, you're always going to be reliant for, for certain emergencies on consultants. So, um, you know, that can uh, obviously be kind of a downside when you call a grumpy consultant at three in the morning. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but in general, I like the variety. Um, I like walking in and, and having no idea what I'm going to do that day. I think when I talk to people about it, that gives a lot of, you know, your kind of, I guess, normal people anxiety um, that like to have, you know, regimented uh, days and, and schedules and, and know what they're going to be doing at work. Um, but uh, I kind of enjoy walking in and having not a clue what I'm going to do that day. So you just wow. go in, you sit down at the computer. And you look and see who's waiting to be seen. You find out which, you know, ambulances are on the way. And, and then you kind of prepare yourself for the night. And then once you kind of start, it just, it doesn't stop. And then you look at the clock and it's, you know, been 10 hours and your shift's over. And you're exhausted, I imagine. Yeah, usually pretty tired afterwards. Yeah. Dang. So um, your, your overall job is like to stabilize these people. And then like if someone comes in and, and they're gushing blood out of their eyeball, then you would like... Make sure that all the life-threatening stuff is handled, and then you call right. the ophthalmologist. Essentially, like, yep. Yeah, any like more. life-threatening kind of stabilization we we do, um, and then um, you know we either make the decision that you know is the patient sick enough they need to be admitted, or do they you know can they go home? Um, and I think that's kind of the biggest part of the job in a sense is is recognizing what is an emergency and what's not. So what can be dealt with in a week? What can what needs to be dealt with in you know 24 hours, and what needs to be dealt with at two in the morning? And so, is, well, is that your job as the as the ER doc, or are there kind of gates before that? You know, if somebody walks in, are there people that can kind of determine? Oh, here's your level of how. Yeah, there's a um, so a triage nurse. So the triage nurses are are, are super valuable because they're going to screen every single person that walks in the door, and they're that first barrier of screening. And and based on some criteria, you know, they'll assign that patient a level. Um, and that will, you know, kind of key you in on, okay, who's, you know, more serious and who's not. Um, and then sometimes, you know, can, can kind of determine your wait time too, uh, uh, which, you know, can cause some problems when, you know, someone in the waiting room sees someone, you know, that gets taken right back, um, you know, because from, from a layperson's perspective, they say, well, any, any other store you go to and, you know, you, you, you get in line and the next yeah. person in line gets to go. Right. But when they see someone, you know, bypassing them, it uh, can create some problems. Oh man, but having drama. a good triage nurse uh, out front is is crucial. What's the uh, lamest visit you've heard about into an ER, into one that you've worked at? Um, the lamest, I don't know. It's hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's there's quite a bit of uh, of, of lame ER visits, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, and ranging a- from you know, and, and obviously, I don't want to see every patient uh, individually and, and try to address their needs, but. From a you know mentally uh, I guess challenging standpoint, I mean there there are certain visits that aren't very taxing mentally. You know, if someone just comes in and wants a medication refill, there's not much time or thought that goes into that because um, they but, can't wait. Yeah, yep, it's uh, it happens. Wow, uh, especially at two in the morning, mm. it, it happens. That's but, that's a little nutty. Yeah, I have a lame one. I uh, <laughs> I hit my head playing frisbee uh, during a tournament, and we went to the emergency room, but like. There were more important people, so I had to wait for a while. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, you hit your head on what? Somebody else. Someone yeah, else's head it was like a, just one of those collisions running past yeah. each other. Um, but as far as the not lame ones, like when you were starting out your residency, 
I got to imagine that the amount of stimulus of all of this potential, you know, like just intense gore or like injuries could be kind of a lot to take in. So was there kind of like a hardening process for your brain to be able to be more resilient to all that and handle all that under pressure? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you, you know, you first kind of get exposed to things in, in medical school. Um, so uh, third year of medical school, you, you rotate through every specialty. You know, you get a little, little snapshot of every medical specialty out there um, to try to decide what you want to do. And I think you, you know, you find, you know, you kind of gravitate to the ones that you like. Um, so like some people, you know, they, they go through the surgical rotation and they say, well, I love being in the operating room. I want to be a surgeon. And, and it's kind of the same thing with ER. You know, it's like, well, I, you know, I, I kind of got bored in the operating room. So I knew I didn't want to be a surgeon. And uh, I didn't like seeing patients in the office because I got kind of bored sitting in an office all day and I uh, didn't like doing that. Um, and uh, so it kind of just all kind of culminated in, you know, in the ER, it was a little bit of, a little bit of everything. So I like that. Um, but you do deal with some really, you know, awful things in the ER. Um, so that's definitely one of the downsides of it. Um, and I think, you know, when you first start doing it, it's hard to separate, you know, your, your human being from, from its work. Um, I have a job to do. And I think uh, as you, you know, progress through residency, you're able to kind of focus a little more and try to, you know, okay, put my my doctor hat on first. This is my in my job. I have a job to do for this person versus my, you know, human hat where I'm thinking like, wow, that's somebody's, you know, mom, that's someone's dad, that's someone's grandmother, um, you know, because you can't you can't really think like that because it really kind of impacts, uh, you know, what you're doing for for that person. You know, if that person needs something done emergently, you know, life saving. Um, you, you've got to kind of put any of that kind of personal stuff um, out the door, which is you know why you can't really be effective treating your own family or friends or because it's impossible to to see them as a patient and not as that person that's your friend or you know that person that's your family um, you need to kind of focus on them as, as your patient right. and what they need it seems like that would get in the way if you start thinking sentimentally about it right like, right um, and I, you know of course you're you know everyone's human so so you do th- you know of course that stuff crosses your mind you know you've got to have really difficult conversations with families you've got to break bad news to people um, and every, you know, you're a human, you know, no one likes to do that. It's, it's still probably the worst part of the job to have to sit down, you know, tell some family that, you know, their family member just passed away. Um, you know, no one, no one wants to do that part of the job. And, you know, I don't think when you envision picking your field of medicine that, you know, you don't really think about that side of it, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but, but, you know, pretty early on in training, they teach you how to do that and how to kind of internalize some of that stuff and, and kind of deal with it um, and how to kind of. Uh, move past it so it doesn't keep building up in you and, and, and affecting you personally. Yeah. yeah. And, and ER docs probably have to share that horrible news probably more than any other. Uh, yeah, I would think so. And more than any other specialty, unfortunately. Um, you know, you do deal with, with death a lot. I mean, us and critical care docs probably, you know, the most as yeah. far as at least in, in the acute uh, setting. But Right, which seems like it would be worse, you know, the acute or traumatic ones as right. opposed to the longer cancer where they kind of know it's coming right right right, right. but one coming? cool thing about about it is uh that you basically spent like i don't know eight nine years of your life developing this like set of superpowers that you have sure. with you at all times and i'm wondering like do people feel safer when you're around they're like oh there's an er doc here uh you know we can yeah go jump off that rock right. like whatever <laughs> well I, I think it's probably a misconception, you know, everyone always is like, like on an airplane, for example, they say, oh, yeah. is, there, is there a doctor on the plane? I mean, I've never been in that situation, but like, like, I mean, I'm sorry, but like when they, when they just say the blanket term, is there a doctor on the plane? Like, you know, if there's a, a 20 year radiologist sitting in the back of the plane, 
probably not going to be able to help you too much. Um, right. Whereas I would take you know the EMT any day right. over that. Yeah. So I mean, it, depending on your your specialty area, and in, in many of those situations, you know, a nurse on the plane is going to be a better bet than than some of the doctors that might, you know, because you know I, I would rather have. Uh, you know, the nurse making decisions than the orthodontist making, you know, decisions uh, if I'm right. having, you know, a heart attack on an airplane. Even though they're both technically doctors. Well, if one would say one, one person was a nurse versus the other was, you know, maybe. Oh, sorry. Wait, I'm just using orthodontist yeah. as, a, as a random, you know, not uh, someone who deals with emergent conditions uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. regularly. But, um, but if there's an ER nurse on the plane, I would, I would want her, you know, Boom. being there taking care of me. So yeah. the question should be, is there a medical professional on the plane? Yeah, or, or yeah, even someone, I guess, uh, you know, who's comfortable dealing with emergency medical conditions. Yeah, um, because, again, a, a good paramedic on the plane, like, I would take that uh, any day. Um, well, you're, you're kind of ideal. I mean, paramedic, EMT, nurse, but also ER doc would be, like, huge, right, on a plane for, like, the luck of the people yeah, on the plane? Yeah, I mean, I guess if, you know, you've got to have someone on there, it probably would be, would be my choice. Um, yeah. If I personally had to have an emergency on a plane, I would feel comfortable knowing that there was another ER doctor there, um, you know, calling the shots. Um, so, but, but that's never happened to you in the wild? No, I've never been in that situation. Um, of course, I get a lot of kind of curbside questions from friends and family, um, which I'm sure any, you know, physician does. Um, but I think, you know, the, the biggest thing too, I think misconception is they just, people feel like you said, it's like, oh, oh, there's a doctor here. Like, we're good. But it's like, go without, do dumb things now. Yeah. Right. Without equipment, without, you know, it's right. like, sure, I can tell you that something really bad is happening to you. But if I don't have the proper tools, I can't do anything about it. So it's right. not going to really help anyone. The fact that you're sitting there with a doctor um, in the middle of, you know, wherever you are, the rural area. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, if you get shot in the chest, you're you're still kind of uh, <laughs> SOL. You can't just if, like if, pull a bullet out and be like, right, and just put it. my finger in the hole and say, all right, you're good, you know? I'm a doctor, it's fine. Right. Does anybody have a napkin? Yeah, yeah. give me the plastic uh, kitchen utensils and we'll, uh, we'll fix you right up. Yeah, uh, tie the tourniquet and just suck the snake venom out. Spread right, it out. Yeah. right. Um, one of the things that my, uh, my buddy who went through med school did was uh, this wilderness medicine mm-hmm. trip. They went out in the woods and like had a bunch of scenarios where one of them would they would take turns being like an injured person and it would be kind of like you say out in a rural area and they'd have to figure it out um bit with a limited set of tools with like Mm -hmm. this small first aid kit have you ever like messed around with that kind of medicine or a little bit i mean i did a wilderness medicine um elective in medical school similar thing where you go out and learn some kind of rural medical techniques and I, i think it would be interesting to get a little more into i mean i'm I'm a little involved in EMS um, in general. I'm the uh, medical director of one of the local um, EMS agencies. Nice. Um, just kind of as a volunteer role, but um, but I do enjoy. We we did a lot of EMS stuff in residency. So part of our our training was kind of talking about caring for someone in like the austere environment. And, and one of my friends from residency actually went on and did a whole year fellowship out west in wilderness medicine. Um, and he has wow. some awesome awesome stories and experiences. Um, but. You know, as far as a, a career path, it's, there's obviously not a lot of places in the country where you can find full-time employment as a wilderness medicine physician. I mean, a lot of like right. national parks need physicians on staff, so you know you can fit there. Um, but it's a uh, it's kind of a niche. You got to you know more of an uh, I think at least in you know if you're going to be a wilderness medicine expert but live in Richmond, Virginia, it's more of an educational niche right, here right, than, right. than truly practical, I guess. Yeah. It's like it's more practical to be able to have all the facilities and tools and things that you right, need. Yeah. Right. Right. <clears throat> Yeah. So cool. you're in your 30s now. Are you going to do ER medicine into into your 60s? 
uh, I don't know if I'll make it through my into my into my late sixties doing it. Um, I mean, it is very demanding physically. So um, it's you know they say it's a it's a young man's field, but um, you know it's uh, there are plenty of docs that I work with that are in their fifties and they're still kind of chugging along. I think. Um, the, the parts of it that are nice are you do have shift work. So I know the exact hours I'm going to be working. And when I'm off, I'm off. So like other specialties that have, have patient, uh, you know, I, I can go, I could pack up and work at any ER I wanted to. I don't have to worry about building a, a patient base. And then the same thing, I don't, I don't have patients emailing me, calling me, asking for medication refills, asking questions. It's, you know, when I walk in, I see the patients that come in the ER that day. Um, you know, when I go home that day, I go home and, and, you know, those patients follow up with their primary care doctors. I'm not following up with anybody. So it's, it's plus and minus. I mean, some people don't like that. Some people want to build long-term relationships with people. Um, I personally don't really want to do that just because I feel like when you do get to know someone really well, I think it can be hard to separate that, you know, physician hat from, you know, friend hat, you know, yeah. been my patient for 20 years. Um, so I, I don't really mind not having that continuity and it is kind of nice to know that when you're when you leave when you're off you're off right um so i know exactly when i'm not working i'm not going to be working so it's it's nice to schedule trips vacations i'm not going to get interrupted by work calls and patient calls and you know emergencies like that um, and we never really have to be on call either which i think is misconception is a lot of people think oh emergency medicine you know you must work so much and be on call all the time but um we're never truly on call like uh, another specialty is um you know our we have they call them call days, but really it's just to be available if someone's sick that day. So I'm not getting called on my days off for questions or consultations or anything. It's um, strictly my, my shift. I work it, I go home and I'm done. Um, and I know my schedule a couple months in advance. So it's, it's easy to plan things out. Um, and as far as the medical field goes, we probably work some of the fewest hours uh, out there. Um, I know, you know, like for, for us, I mean, they consider full-time 30 hours a week. So you know, compared to some of the other specialists who spend their life working 60 hours a week, you know, I can work 30 hours a week and still be full-time, have full-time benefits, um, and still have plenty of time off. But, you know, you do need time to recover after shifts because they are very physically and mentally demanding. Mm. So, um, you know, it, it does take some time to recover. What are some of the physically demanding things like walking around? Yeah. I mean, you're on your, you're, you're essentially running the entire time. Um, oh, I mean, running. Well, not running, but you know, you're you're essentially just going from place to place your entire shift. So there's not much downtime. There's not much, uh, you know. I, I try to make a point now because, again, like you said, longevity is is a concern. You know, can I do this forever? So I try to make a point every shift to like to walk out of the department for at least ten minutes, no matter how busy it is. Just step out for ten minutes, go grab like a snack or a coffee or something, and not think about medicine for 10 minutes just totally decompress and get out of the department and it really helps me kind of refresh and reset come back in jump right back into it and having that little kind of 10 minute 15 minute mental break um every shift really helps and i imagine there's like a ton of communication that has to happen between like getting the patient set up and rotating them out and like you said the triage nurse but i imagine there's a lot of other kind of support staff or supporting oh, yeah. cast that, yeah. that help out yeah so i like, mean what any- does that look like yeah, so I mean, the best way to describe it is kind of organized chaos. I mean, to, to any layperson walking into one of our busy ERs that I work at, it would just look like sheer chaos. I mean, it, you know, there's so much happening. There's people doing a million different things at once. Um, but, you know, there's kind of a, a beauty to it in a sense of, of seeing how well uh, kind of organized the chaos can be to a certain extent. Obviously, there's a lot of things you can't really account for in a given day. Um, you know, you'd be at work and someone drops off a, you know, shooting victim out of their truck in front of the, you know, hospital entrance or things like that. Or, you know, ladies' baby is halfway out when she pulls up. But, 
um, in general, you know, we have a pretty good system of, of a charge nurse who is the one that's kind of from a, I guess, administrative standpoint is, is running the logistics of the ER. So, um, you know, and then each there's nurses that are assigned to certain rooms and pods and um, there's kind of a strategy on when certain beds open and when they close and how quickly you bring them back and where we bring them back to. And, um, you know, we have the, some of the ERs are set up into different uh, acuity levels where, you know, which zone that patient comes into. And um, so there's this charge nurse who's like calling the shots and then there are these like other, I guess, nurses that help set up the patient. And then there are some things that only you can, like only an ER doc is able to do that nurses, for example, can't do, like in terms of actual procedures. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, the charge nurse is kind of looking at the logistics of the department and, you know, they're getting calls from EMS. They're looking at the waiting room. They're figuring out, you know, you know, we've got two ambulances coming in. You know, we need to block these two rooms off, but we've got this really sick person in the waiting room. We need to get them back. So they're the ones that are kind of coordinating the front end process of getting people into the right place. Mm. And then when they get into the room, there is a dedicated nurse for that patient. So that nurse might have four rooms that she is kind of running and um, seeing the patients in. So they'll bring the patient back to the room. Um, but then every patient ultimately has to get seen by either a doctor or a PA or a nurse practitioner. So we'll go in, spend the time with the patient and come up with a treatment plan, put the plan in, in place. And the nurses are the ones that kind of carry out that plan in a sense. So we'll put in the orders um, for testing, for treatment, for things like that. Um, and then the nurses are the ones that are um, you know, administering the medications and the treatments and doing things along those lines. And then there's a uh, ER techs uh, that are typically usually nursing students or EMTs, um, and they're there to, to assist with those tasks as well. They're starting IVs, um, they're drawing blood, um, they're getting EKGs on patients, um, they're you know transporting patients around if they need to, um, and, and doing a lot of those kind of tasks that are uh, super essential um, to, to getting that patient in and seen and treated effectively. Um, because we're, you're on a time clock with every patient that walks in the door. Um, because you know there's more waiting for that room. So, you know, you, you want to give every patient their individual attention, um, but we need to have the things happen as, as quickly as possible. So getting all mm -hmm. those labs sent and, you know, the urine sent and the testing done um, as fast as, as possible to get that patient kind of seen, diagnosed, and treated, and then dispoed because the ER is not the final landing ground for anybody. It's either they got to come into that room, we've got to figure out what's going on with them, and then make a decision on do they go upstairs, do they go to the OR, do they go home? Um, so it all kind of happens quickly, but, you know, you can be managing a lot of patients at once. So, um, you know, if it's busy, you know, you might have 10 active patients at one time that you're oh, trying to juggle and, and bounce between, you know, and then you're getting calls saying, oh, we've, we've got a cardiac arrest coming in with CPR in progress, you know, so you're going to drop everything you're doing and run to that room. So it can get kind of kind of hectic at times and feel a little uh, overwhelming um but yeah. uh, you've got a lot of people there that are that are um that are awesome and, and and doing their stuff to kind of keep it flowing yeah shout out to all those roles that you mentioned yeah i saw i see this billboard sometimes on the highway here uh i can't remember what hospital it is but it's got the little number on it for like average wait time yeah is that something that you guys are like let's get that wait time down it's a big administrative push, but I mean, in any, uh, you know, I don't want to go into too many details and get myself in trouble, but I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a hospital administrators and, and, you know, people who are very, um, interested in those numbers and getting those metrics right. as, as good as they can be, um, that aren't necessarily, uh, realistic, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we get pushed from a lot of different directions to do things, um, to improve certain, certain metrics yeah, that yeah. aren't necessarily better for the patients, but they're better for rankings the and the optics. Yeah. yeah. So some people in, uh, medicine enjoy money. 
I think is yeah. what we're saying. Yeah. And, and one of the older uh, ER doctors, I kind of joke about it, he, uh, when he, he said, he said, I only like to look at hospitals that are ranked terribly. He was like, because I know I'm going to be able to actually go there and practice how I want to practice, and I'm not going to have someone breathing down my back the whole time. <laughs> that's concerned about my length of stays and my numbers. He's like, if I see that I'm about to go work at a hospital that, that, that brags about their high rankings, he's like, I know it's going to be a nightmare for yeah, me. He's super like, anal retentive. Right, yeah. I'm going to show up and they're going to be down, breathing down my throat to get the, mm. oh, my numbers better. And, that's you know, genius. Precious yeah. rankings. The, the older yeah. guy has some wisdom. Yeah, there. he did. He's like, at yeah. the time I was like, I was young. I was like, oh, that's silly. He's like, I was like, I want to work at the most prestigious <laughs> hospital I can. But he's like, no. Nah. He's like, I, if I find one that's like ranked at the bottom, he's like, that's my favorite place to go. That's beautiful. So <laughs> nice. when you say inner city, is that Richmond? Maybe. Yeah, so I work um, around the city within the Bon Secours system. Okay. Um, I don't know. I guess I can say that on the podcast. Yeah, I think, so. yeah. I think you're fine. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I work at, at various um, kind of hospitals in the Bon Secours system around Richmond. So the protest or riots, depending on your political leading, I guess, that happened back in the spring and mm-hmm. early summer, was the ER experience different in the inner city? Um, during that, I, I didn't um, feel really any difference. I think we were a little um, kind of on edge, not knowing what could happen. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, had, I had a few patients that were down there and involved in things, but nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, you know, pre-COVID, you're getting the bar fights and the assaults and everything. And, um, you know, this just happened to be in a different setting. But from, a, from right. you know, I'm sure from an EMS standpoint, their experience was, was quite different. But, um, you know, they have the advantage of seeing the patient at the scene, seeing w- w- what happened. You know, when we see them, we see them all in the exact same, you know, kind of blank, very, uh, you know, generic colored room. And uh, so we don't kind of really see the, the outside, what happened. Mm. Why, why are the rooms so generic? That's a great question. So I, I think there's been a big push lately to try to make ERs look a little more, um, you know, homey. I mean, they just redid one of the floors in our ER. A little more inviting. It went maybe. from, you know, that white sterile look to like a fake hardwood look. So you feel like you're in your living room, you wow. know, it's like, you know, it's like, okay, I get it. Yeah, you maybe feel a little more at home. But I think at the end of the day, patients in the ER probably don't care too much. I, yeah. I, they did a survey. Uh, you know, what do you, do you care what your doctor's wearing? You know, do you do you want them to wear a white coat, a suit, a tie, and like, and they looked at the different medical specialties, and ER was like the bottom of like, we don't care what our ER doctors wear. Right. Like, yeah, we just want to live. Like, that's, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I've learned a couple of things. Yeah, yeah, I would. I, I definitely don't want the person if I go to the ER to be somebody I know or who cares about me, and then right. also I don't care what they wear. They could be yeah. wearing a hoodie, t-shirt, and jeans. Right, exactly. As long as they're good it, at what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you don't care. Which is nice wearing scrubs every day to work because I don't have to think about my outfit every day. I mean, my clothes cost is like almost nothing because I wear, you know, I've got like the same exact pair of scrubs in like, you know, eight, you know, eight sets of the exact same <laughs> pair of scrubs. And I just rotate them out and wash them, and it's wear the same thing to work every day. It's I w- like I wish my life was that simple. That's what Steve yeah. Jobs did. He just yep. did the black shirt and the jeans. Yeah, but you guys day. already have that for for it. Yeah. Yep, yep. Beautiful. So it is early 2021, and we are still in a pandemic, and you were an ER doc from the beginning. At what point did you realize we had a pandemic? When the government essentially declared it, or, or publicly it was being declared, or did you guys know that it was probably a, a problem before it was actually yeah, declared? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where it was almost kind of surreal at first, right? You were You were seeing it in other countries, and you're like, oh. That's that's you know Asia. That's that's never going to happen in this country. And then the first couple of cases started popping up, but everyone's like, oh, it's fine. They'll they'll just be isolated. Like we're we're good. This is this is not going to happen. And uh, I, I remember like even when it started getting 
really bad, we weren't affected in Virginia yet. You know, we were we weren't one of the last ones, but we weren't one of the first hotspots. So mm-hmm. I think when I started talking to some of my friends um, that do work in places like New York, uh, that that's when it kind of hit home. It's like, wow, this is this is a huge problem. We need to start preparing for it. But I I don't, I don't think it was it was really challenging because. No one, I think, has ever really thought about this before, or, or at least to this extent of, of how do we prepare it. I mean, every hospital has um, plans, you know, disaster plans, but, you know, most of them have never actually been implemented before. And, and how are we going to do this um, when we have all these people to, to deal with? Um, and, you know, knock on wood, we, we have are not anywhere near some of the situations that were happening in, in New York. Um, but... Uh, I remember I, I was um, I, I I personally took care of the the first really sick COVID patient we had at our hospital system, and it was just like kind of uh, mind blowing at seeing that and and being kind of there uh, and realizing how little we knew and I mean how little we really still do know, but on, on how to care for those patients. Um, and it's kind of been amazing at how quickly you know the medical community has come together. Um, really just the scientific community in general has come together to try to start really fighting this thing. Um, and, you know, things that we thought may have been good then, we realize are not good now. Um, like a lot of things in medicine, things they did 20 years ago, we realized, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing these things anymore. Right. But um, same thing with COVID, you know, some of the stuff we thought we needed to do early on, um, we, we realize now that it's it's kind of the opposite. So I think that was, was the biggest thing early on was uh, the uncertainty of how mm-hmm. bad can it get? And how do we care for these patients? Because yeah. no one really knew what this thing was and what it was going to do to people. So it was, it was really intimidating. Yeah. As like a specific example, I remember the at least the high profile one is the example of the ventilators and how yeah. like intubating people. At some point, there was like a shift in in, in the data or the opinion right. that like intubating and, ventila- and putting people on ventilators was actually not as a good of a treatment as like other ways. Did you notice right. that like... Yeah, yeah. At first, it was a push to we need to we need to intubate them, you know, quick. You need to intubate them early. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like you said, that that shifted pretty quickly. Um, that was kind of one of the biggest things that was you know uh, was, was changing um, was that approach. Um, but you know, and they were coming up with all these new things about you know we. I, I thought these were kind of stupid from the beginning, but intubation boxes where you put the patient in this like plexiglass box and do the intubation in the box, and we got like three of them in our ER really quickly, and like. I never used the thing once because I was like, this is insane. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was just this mass of like panic almost of like, what can we do to not get infected? Right. Um, but I, I specifically remember looking at these boxes and it's like, it's still wide open on one end. So it's like, what what is this intubation box actually accomplishing? I have no idea. <laughs> but I think the scariest thing at the beginning was we didn't know how deadly this thing was. I mean, initially they were thinking the fatality rate was going to be much higher. So from a personal standpoint, you know, you're you're seeing these patients and we didn't have really good testing at first. So it was taking a, a week to get these results back um, early on. So so you were just living every day having no idea, you know, am I going to catch this? Am I going to come bring it home to my family? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I even do? Do I do I go home and see my family? Do I do I quarantine myself at home? So many unanswered questions um, and, and you know, everybody I work with was going through the same thing. Um, and we try to make light of it, but it was still a very scary thing to live through of not yeah. knowing, you know, is this going to, am I going to get this and die from it? Or am I going to get this and give it to my parents or my, my wife, or my kid, uh, you know, and, and how, how careful do I need to be? I mean, yeah, especially a lot of the models, like the computer science database models that they built were like extremely pessimistic and cause they didn't really factor in a lot of 
Right. You know, it's it's hard to factor a lot of things into just pure math. But there were there were <clears> models <throat> saying like 20 million people would die in the U.S. And right. Like, do you, you know? And of course, the news is like, yo, God, this is you know, 20 million people might die. And so like reading that, I can't even imagine like having being in that setting every day, like uh, the potential risk of it. Yeah. And I think I felt somewhat. I mean, I wasn't as like as big on the doom and gloom as I think some people were, but just because we had seen, like, I, I think the, one of the first patients we saw and diagnosed had been abroad. So that was like our, diag- our diagnostic criteria initially was you had to have traveled abroad because at that mm-hmm. point, oh, you, you can't get it in the country. Like you can only get it from another country. <laughs> from China, yeah. So, so they had to have traveled to even get tested. And this person came in just because they had, had traveled and had a runny nose. And I was like, this is so, this is so silly, but, but they were positive. They had it. And oh, really? And we called them thinking like, oh, surely they're going to get really sick. And we called them like when we got the test back a week later. And they were like, no, my, my runny nose went away. I feel great. I'm back to normal. Huh. They're totally fine. So I was like, okay. So so this thing definitely doesn't just ravage everyone uh, from, from the beginning. Um, yeah. But seeing the other side of it was really intimidating. I mean, seeing the people dying from it mm. um, and how they were dying from it, um, which is what was so, I think, draining on the healthcare system was it was how long these people stayed sick. And on ventilators, you know, they weren't getting better. They were they were on ventilators for weeks. So, once one person went on a ventilator, you know, you knew that, that if they were going to make it, they had a long hospitalization in front of them. Uh, and you know, that's when resources, I think, kind of became a concern. Mm. Um, but luckily, at least within the you know the health system I'm working at, you know, that was never you know we never ran out of ventilators. I've never felt like we didn't have adequate PPE. I, I've always felt that we had the equipment that we needed when we needed it. Um, the bed space is a little different situation. We have run out of beds several times. Um, this second go round has actually been worse than the first go round. Really? Um, in a different sense. I think the first go round was was bad because of the uncertainty. Uh, that's what I think was killer with the first round is, is we just didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were kind of just, just shooting blind with everything. Um, the second round, I think we know a little bit more how to care for these patients and, and a little bit more on the prognostic side of things. Um, but we have been uh, very overwhelmed in certain times. Now, luckily, it's kind of been coming and going in waves and waxing and waning a little bit. So we've been able to recover. Um, but there have been a couple times where the region in the Richmond area, um, from an EMS standpoint, you know, we've been on a, on a diversion status um, level where there were five ERs that were on complete EMS diversion, which means their hospital system was overwhelmed, their ER was overwhelmed, they couldn't take new patients um, because all their resources were stretched. Um, well, so that so gets a little you know, intimidating when you've got five of the main hospitals in this region that are on EMS diversion. Um, and that's, and are, that's like telling ambulances, like, don't even come here. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a courtesy. So you know, if, it, if it's in the patient's best interest or if it's something you know, life-threatening, they can bypass that. But in general, um, they, typically it's saying, you know, we, we are too busy right now. We're too overwhelmed to, to take new patients right now. And that, and that doesn't happen, right, to that level? No, it rarely happens. Um, rarely happens. So luckily, you know, we were only in that for a brief period, and then we were able to rebound a little bit. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we've, we've had plenty of days where it's, um, you know, it, it, the bed situation is real. So that's why the, um, I think with the first go-around, that didn't happen around here because people were so terrified that they didn't go out. So our RER volume went down by 50%. So we were seeing half the patients we were seeing in the ER that time the year before because of, of COVID. And, and interestingly, you know, our, our statistics of like stroke, heart attack patients went down too, but but obviously people aren't having fewer strokes and heart attacks, right. so they just weren't coming to the hospital. Mm. So people were sitting at home 
dealing with their stroke or chest pain or whatever and not actually seeking medical attention, which was a huge issue, I think, the first go-around. The second go-around, I think some of the problem is is that there are a lot of people that, that don't really care anymore and are not really paying attention. So I think that's what's led to us getting a little more overwhelmed, I think, the second go-around. Um, but again, it's all, at least as of now, things things seem to be, you know, we're, we're kind of managing it and it's 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 been okay. It's just been very busy and, and pretty hectic and trying to kind of sort with where, where patients are gonna go and, and getting the rooms. Um, figured out um yeah wow and you got the vaccine right so yeah fully fully vaccinated now. there are two yeah. people in this house right now that have had the vaccine my uh, teacher aid wife got oh nice yesterday yeah. awesome yeah. awesome very cool and you're talking we're nobody's really talking about the stats of the people that are no longer with us because they wouldn't go see the doctor or wouldn't go to the er i i worked with a woman who was in her mid-40s in in decent health and she had some underlying issues mm-hmm. that I think she probably had some symptoms of and in normal times would have gone to see a doctor and yep. did not. And she, she died in her home. Yep. Yeah. I've seen a lot of it, a lot of um, EMS calls for cardiac arrest and, you know, and unfortunately hearing some of the stories of, well, they've been, you know, having chest pain for a few days and didn't want to go to the hospital because they were scared of COVID. And uh, unfortunately I think that's, I think you said a statistic you really don't, um, they don't talk about. And then the other side of that is, um, you know, I think the, the other, ill effect of COVID has been the loss of job, mental health issues, depression, substance abuse. Um, that's the other thing that we've had a, a real issue with beds. I mean, we've ever been several times when every mental health bed in the state of Virginia has been occupied. So we couldn't find beds for patients. So they, oh, wow. they essentially have to sit in the ER um, sometimes for, for a couple of days, you know, getting their, their mental health care, but they're still, you know, obviously not ideal that they're having to sit in the ER. Right. Um, but that, I think that's been a direct effect of, of, you know, job loss and things during COVID. And uh, it's really had a bad effect on people um, from you know, multiple angles. Uh, how are you feeling about uh, treatment for COVID these days? A lot more confident than you did say back in March and April? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's still no good silver bullet for it. I mean, there's no, um, you know, good medication where you come in and, and, and we give you this medication and, uh, and, and you get better and you're fine. Um, there's a lot of experimental drugs. There's a lot of um, things out there that we're starting to realize, you know, maybe do work. There's a lot of things that we realize that were popular early on that don't work at all. Um, and uh, I think it's more so just getting comfortable knowing, uh, I guess, kind of the natural progression of the disease. And, and I think what is most kind of mind blowing is, is seeing some of these patients and their, their level of uh, hypoxia or, the, or how low their oxygen levels mm. are and how good they still look. Whereas as early on uh, during COVID, you know, these people were all getting put on ventilators because it was almost just mind blowing how low their oxygen levels could be, but they're still just sitting there and look fine. Um, But now we realize like, that's not the way to go with these people. And and we have some other techniques to try to get their oxygen levels up um, before we just jump straight to to intubation. Uh, So, and those have been pretty successful. I've I've heard on the internet, and I'm not claiming this opinion, but uh, that, you know, when people die and if they, everyone gets tested and when people die, even if they die of like a traumatic injury or something that's obviously a cause of death, COVID is sometimes listed just in, in terms of records as like one of the causes. And then that number gets rolled up and then into the, the big number. Do you, have, do you have any insight on that? Or We're not like, trying to get you in trouble. Either. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 people ask that too. They're like, oh, are you, are they pressuring you to put COVID as a diagnosis? I'm like that, that's never been a, an issue. I mean. I've never had someone that's pressuring us to, to, to list COVID on there. I mean, I, I fill out, um, you know, unfortunately, my fair share of death certificates. And, and, and a lot of times we never test the patient for COVID. I mean, if they come in something totally unrelated, 
Um, I didn't have a need to test them in the ER, so I, you know I'm, I don't put that on there um, unless yeah. I, it really was a COVID-related death. Um, but uh, there are a lot of people that have positive COVID tests, and we don't know what to do with it. So mm. uh, that's kind of one of the I think the challenging with the um, some of the mental health stuff is is it's a requirement to uh, before you get admitted for mental health is to get a negative COVID test. So initially, those were taking 24 hours, 48 hours. So that was a huge delay getting getting someone the help they needed. Um, and now, you know, we don't really know what to do with these asymptomatic positive tests because we have mm. a handful of patients. We test them, and, and sure enough, some of them come back positive and they're and fine. Never just... had symptoms. Don't know what to make of it because, uh, you know, right now the recommendation is you know you still want to quarantine from the date of that test, but. People are testing positive, you know, weeks and, and even months after they've had COVID. Mm. So even even at the point where they would have been cleared to go back to work, they still have a positive test. Hmm. So a lot of this mandating of, of negative tests before XYZ happens, I, I don't know if it makes as much sense. I mean, there's no other way to really go about doing it better now. Um, but it is kind of hard for someone who is going to test positive for, for six weeks after they've had it. And they're going to have to carry that with them. Um, Wow. If they're if they're required to get that test again, so people so. come to the ER for mental health, or is that just a separate example you were talking about? Oh yeah, people come to the ER for mental health all the time. Yeah, really. Yep. Yeah, that's, like, that's kind of the, the the gateway into kind of the mental health, um, uh, I guess, treatment uh, facilities. So someone comes in having a mental health crisis, they're usually referred into the ER, um, and then we have a really great system of mental health kind of I guess best way to describe it is kind of mental health caseworkers mm -hmm. um, that will help us coordinate. Um, getting that patient admitted and getting the mental health care uh, that they need. Do a lot of them like get brought by family and friends or do they show up of their own volition? It's a combination of both. Some get brought in by family friends, some come in on their own, some get brought in by law enforcement, um, mm. not under their own will. Right. But, um, but yeah, they all, the kind of common ground is they all, you know, come in, they get seen by an ER physician uh, for medical clearance and then we kind of help facilitate where they go from there. Interesting. So it really is kind of a, a catch-all. I mean, we see every spectrum of, of the medical field comes through the ER. Yeah, your breath is so. staggering what you deal with. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think 2021 is going to play out as it relates to COVID? Uh, not, not, not going to hold you to anything you say. but I Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful with the vaccines. I think it's going to be a big part on on how, can we, how, how effectively do we get this vaccine rolled out. And... I think mostly for just the at-risk people. You know, let's let's get the people that have direct exposure to others. So I think getting healthcare workers, um, and then getting the high-risk people, the elderly people with chronic medical conditions, getting them vaccinated. And I think at that point, um, you know, we can start to at least feel a little bit of a relief because at that point, we you know, COVID is still going to be with us. I don't think we're ever going to see COVID go away. I think it's going to become something that that we deal with um, that people have. Um, you know, and I look back at some of the other. Um, things that were a big deal at the time, like uh, like swine flu, right? right, right. And that was the, the, the big news. And, and now no one talks about swine flu um, because most of the time we don't, we don't look for it. We have a generic flu test and they test positive for the flu, we have the flu. But yeah. interestingly, when I started, we started sending more um, kind of specific respiratory viral panels when all this started. Um, and I, I saw cases of the swine flu in people that we never would have known otherwise had right. the swine flu. And I feel like um, I'm hoping we get to a point where, where COVID is just one of those things that, you know, it, it is an illness that uh, I don't know if it'll become seasonal or, or what it will play out as, but I'm, I'm hoping that um, that everyone will be able to get vaccinated, you know, as much as needed. I don't we, I don't think we, anyone knows how frequently that's going to have to be, um, but enough to keep the, the elderly, the at-risk folks um, safe 
and out of the hospital yeah. and the other people that get it hopefully um you know it will be just like having a flu-like illness and then you'll recover from it yeah. anything else you want to ask about er doc no i yeah I've, I've learned a stupid amount yeah so have i this, this has been fantastic we love to end uh especially for people that are married with a kid or two uh to talk about your family how you met your wife and, and tell us a little bit more about her and your son um so uh, I met her at UVA. Um, I was first year of medical school, and she was in her first year of grad school doing her master's for um, speech therapy. Um, and we, uh, we met in a bar. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we just, uh, you know, kind of talked after that and then ended up dating. And I thought there's there's no way I'll end up with a, with a girl from Ohio. There's, there's no chance. And then, of course, we ended up getting married. Um, and then um, she... Followed me to residency, so um, you know she uh, obviously had to have a ring before she was going to commit to that. But uh, when she knew that we were going to Pittsburgh, um, she was willing to quit her job, quit everything, and, and move up with me. Um, so we had been long distance the two years prior to that. Um, mm. She had moved to Fredericksburg when she graduated, um, so we we're, were kind of long distance for two years. That's rough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, and then she quit everything, moved with me, got a new job in Pittsburgh. Um, we loved it there. We had uh, met a lot of really good lifelong friends that we still stay in touch with. And we're actually going on a trip with them uh, in two weeks. Nice. Uh, residency friends. Now that we're all vaccinated, we're like, well, we may as well kind of, you know, do something social with each other. Right. Um, but um, so, and then uh, residency, we didn't really want to have a kid just with a crazy work schedule, you know, working 60 to 80 hours a week and having no free time for three years wasn't, wasn't great for a kid. So we waited till after residency to kind of consider that. And, then we, we timed it, uh, maybe not the most ideal, but it was kind of a whirlwind of, you know, within three months we had moved states, both started new jobs, had a baby, bought a house, all within about a three month time frame. So it was a little overwhelming oh, wow. yeah. uh, when we first moved back to Richmond. Um, but, but you're in ER great sense. You're used to that kind of yeah, thing. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have at least a few things going yeah, on. Yeah, I need something going on. I, <laughs> yeah. If things get too like steady and normal, I kind of freak out. I need, uh, <laughs> I need something happening. Well, very cool. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. I think we talked about a month ago, and you're like, yeah, I think I can do something in the January. And Daniel and I were both uh, very happy to have you on. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. For us. Yep. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.